I'm Nareet Ben. Welcome to Life Deconstructed. For over 12 years, Jane Ferguson has lived in the Middle East, reporting for CNN, Al Jazeera, and now PBS from some of the most dangerous conflict zones in the world. Inside the civil war in Yemen, one of the first on the ground in rebel-held Syria, in and out of Somalia and Afghanistan, and a long way from her childhood in Northern Ireland. We caught up back in New York, stuck like everyone in these COVID days, on what she learned as a new reporter, alone in navigating dangerous assignments, figuring out the hard way how to follow her intuition, and persuading strangers in all kinds of conflict zones to trust in her and talk. Jane Ferguson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It's good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for having me on. So Jane, at this point, you've spent some 12 years in the Middle East in some of the most intense war zones in the world. It seems like a far way away from growing up in Northern Ireland. Tell me what childhood was like there for you. You know, I think everybody as a kid normalizes everything. And so I was technically growing up during the troubles, you know, as we would call them. So there was a lot of sectarian strife, which you grow up as a child thinking is perfectly normal. Having the army in the streets, like the actual army having checkpoints, I didn't know that that wasn't quite normal. So in many ways, there's this huge like juxtaposition between fairly idyllic rural life. I grew up on a farm. Yeah, I can only imagine how beautiful. Yeah, it's very pretty, you know, I mean, sometimes it can be a little overly romanticized, like, you know, it's also a lot of hard work. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks to a few romantic comedies, what can we do? Exactly. So uh, I grew up very close to the border, just about probably five miles as the crow flies north of the border. South Armagh is kind of known for its unrest. And I was growing up just outside of basically the last predominantly Protestant village before you get to extremely Republican areas in the south. But it was so incredibly beautiful. Everything you would picture, green hills, small, tiny little roadways, village life, but also there was a backdrop of quite a bit of unrest and violence. Even though that was so normal, and I think that's completely true, that what you sort of grow up with as a child, no matter what it is, just gets automatically sort of normalized, internalized. Do you think growing up with that in the background had some sort of impact, if you look at it today, on the reality that you're drawn to these very conflict-ridden, complicated places? Yes. I, I... In retrospect, yes. I used to hate it that like people would just sort of join the dots for me when I was much younger in my career. And like I would meet more veteran reporters who had cut their teeth on Northern Ireland and they would they would be like, oh, of course, that all makes sense. And I used to sort of (laughs) sort of like someone analyzing your parents or something Uh, and saying, oh, of course, it's because your dad was this or your mom. was." Yeah, or, or exactly. It sort of felt like I was being put in a bit of a box. But in retrospect, I do think so. Like I've talked about this before and it's really only looking back and thinking about it when I was growing up because of the troubles I would watch the news every night the news was was voice of God like watching the BBC evening news reports or ITV or whatever the local local news sources were and there were women you know there weren't a huge amount of female leadership role models you know growing up in, in rural Northern Ireland it was a very patriarchal society but there were BBC journalists 
and they were on the television and people were listening to what they were saying and they were commanding people's attention and respect. And I think that that probably in retrospect really had an impression on me as a little girl. Yeah, there's so much that we absorb just kind of as the fabric of our environment that ends up impacting us, even if we want to fight it. And that was the case for me too, I think, when I think back on some of the academic or scientific atmosphere that I grew up in, how did that maybe push me one way or another, even though it, you know nobody was telling me what to do, but it definitely yeah. does have an impact. But so you at some point moved to New Jersey and I can't imagine like, this has got to be some kind of a culture shock, no, from Northern Ireland to, to New Jersey, was it? The most unbelievable culture shock. So there's there's a, a very, very elite boarding school, very fancy boarding school in Northern New Jersey, just outside of Princeton called Lawrenceville, which is amazing. It's an amazing place, but they had a bunch of scholarships and they, one of the scholarships that had been set up by someone in the Irish American community was a sort of a, a Northern an Irish scholarship for two kids, one Protestant, one Catholic. It was like a peace, uh, you know, effort. And it would be for one year in boarding school before college. And yeah, so I went from this rural grammar school, kind of the old, the old British grammar school system, but really, really rural sheltered life to a landing in what I thought was America. So I'm in like leafy Princeton. And I just think America is the fanciest place I've ever seen in my life because it's just, it's just like boarding school and, you know, it's, it's so pretty and nice. And it, it was, it was absolutely overwhelming as an experience, but hugely like formidable for me, uh, completely shaped me. In what way do you think it shaped you? I was in retrospect sort of purposefully placed into a place that was this vast leafy campus where I would sit in classes with no more than 12 other students around a round table and talk. And oh, wow, that's so rare. Uh, very rare. That's a great experience at such a young age. Yeah, especially having been raised in a culture where in Northern Ireland, you know, it's we're very, very, and, and all of Ireland, I think, to a certain extent, but almost more in the North, like we're very, very humble people. It's frowned upon to self-promote or, you know, yeah. overconfidence. <laughs> and then you get to America. <laughs> and then you get to the rest of the world, you know, and yeah. America especially. America is probably on top of that list, though. Yeah. Of, and so of I would, the art of self-promotion. Self-promotion and confidence. And I just saw all these kids who spoke and moved and lived with such incredible self-confidence and not, you know, misplaced arrogance, like they worked hard. I, I often said that it was a place of incredible privilege, but not self-indulgence. These kids were so unbelievably confident and articulate, but we also had to get up at like, you know, school started at 7.30 in the morning and we, I played in the field hockey team in Ireland and in America. And in America, we practiced every day, you know, <laughs> like, you know, I mean, everything was intense and hard and it was just an incredibly good worldly FYI before going back to the UK and to college. Yeah, it gave you sort of permission to speak your mind, I guess, and to speak Permission up. to speak my mind and to dream bigger. You know, I mean, talk about perspective. I mean, these kids were like going off to rule the world. They were going off to yeah. Wall Street and politics and sports, and they were going to be at the top of whatever they decided they wanted to be because they had drive and focus and confidence to see the opportunities to dream a lot bigger. And I, I think I took that with me. 
So when you took that with you, you just mentioned going back to the UK, um, studying, I think, English and, and politics. At that point, when you head back, did you have any sense now of, of what those dreams were going to be? I mean, was being a war correspondent or correspondent, for that matter, already on your radar? It definitely was on my radar. I wanted to be a journalist. I knew I wanted to be a reporter. The only time I'd ever sort of entertained the idea of something else was more in like a developmental role, like perhaps the UN or something to do with that. But I knew I wanted to work in conflict zones and I wanted to tell stories and I wanted to be a communicator. What my experience in the States did for me was simply to think big, much bigger. But I'd always known I wanted to be a reporter and I was drawn to this idea of like helping people communicate, you know, and it wasn't so much about growing up in a violent place. I think I was shaped by the fact that I grew up in a place that was divided. So there was so much mistrust in the community. I mean, I grew up in a completely divided community. You know, we'd go to Protestant schools, Catholic schools. You know, there are Protestant villages, Catholic villages. All of life was divided. I really, really bristled that a lot of the bigotry around me. I mean, there are many, many good people and plenty of people who are open-minded too, but there was a vast amount of mistrust and misunderstanding between communities. That's, I think, why I wanted to work in conflict zones, because I really found like, if we could just help communicate better uh, yeah, as people generally. bridge that divide. Yeah, exactly. And storytelling is in our, you know, it's part of what we do. It's part of all kind of Celtic cultures, whether you're Ulster Scots or you're Irish Catholic. So how do you end up actually making that leap to get into journalism, to starting at CNN as a foreign correspondent? Because all of these networks, these sort of storied networks are also kind of big corporate machines and take some navigating. And how, how did that <laughs> well, work for you? In many ways, I'm the worst person to ask about how to navigate the corporate machines because it has been so challenging for me in the sense that it has for many, many of my generation. My story is very reflective and sort of formative of what has been happening since I got into the business about sort of 12, 13 years ago. I graduated college in 2007, so the world's economy had collapsed. And I mean, back then, I mean, it was an apocalyptic scene when it came to the media. Like we were told radio, belonged in a museum like this is before podcasts really took off you know newspapers were collapsing business model didn't work forget about newspapers they were laying off staff and I remember going to the BBC in, in London at one stage and talking to the foreign editor and he was like I have to lay off 500 staff I am not giving you a job. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it was actually, my early years, at, I started out at the CBS Evening News. And I remember when I first started out there, my boss basically went on a global tour, shutting bureaus down and firing yeah. people. And it was Absolutely. like, these are relics of the past. Yeah. And foreign news especially was being canned. And so... Uh, it was impossible to just get in. You know, I remember I was living in Dubai because I got a job eventually. I went to Yemen to study Arabic for a few months and then got a job in Dubai at an English language paper. And essentially, after a couple of years at that, uh, CNN opened a big hub up in Abu Dhabi and I jumped in my little car and I drove up to Abu Dhabi and I got a meeting with the bureau chief and I asked him for a job and he said, I, I don't have any openings. Like, And I said, I will do anything. I will park cars, open your mail, just let me be a receptionist. And I was already, you know, a fairly well-paid business reporter by this stage, but I just desperately really, really wanted to get into broadcasting and do international news. And so in the end, he offered to take me on as a freelancer. And I became this sort of uh, solo self-shooting correspondent where I would go places like that they weren't sending teams to that uh, turned out to usually be quite dangerous. So it was a beat that I loved because it was 
interesting to me. I was covering Al-Qaeda sort of franchises in places like Somalia and Yemen, but it was very much so on a shoestring, alone, self-shooting, and then coming back um, on a tiny little so, um, contract. I mean, normally, if you go to places like this, it's a production. I mean, you would have producer, a fixer, some sort of network bubble around you in one way. So not only are you starting out really your broadcasting career and, and brand new to that, but in places like Somalia and Yemen. Tell me what were some of those first assignments like for you? It was incredibly difficult. Like you say, normally you would at least have a camera person and, uh, you know, a producer maybe. But this was back whenever foreign budgets were slashed and fr freelancers were starting to fill that space. The one-man band. The one-man band, which I don't believe in. I think like the two man slash woman band is yeah. definitely the way to go but two plus band. yeah yeah so the other thing you have to consider is that you're trying to basically sell yourself and your story so you have to bring something to the table that a team of six with a hundred thousand dollars to spend can't get so in many ways it's this incredible baptism of fire because you have to get uh remarkable access you have to have the contacts you have to have the ability and the and the willingness to go to where the story is so i i would go places like i would go on an embed in mogadishu with the african union forces who back then were mostly ugandans so that i could see what was going on in the battles against al-Shabaab there. So I was desperately trying to, to do this. I, I actually adored it. I loved the reporting. I loved producing my own work. What I hated was shooting. I was a terrible camera woman and I, I think I just didn't like doing it. So I would just didn't want to get good at it. So I still don't really shoot very much uh, these days, even with uh, a cameraman or camera well, woman. So with many me. things to juggle I, I, in many. terms of getting people, really persuading people when you are arrive in a zone like that to talk to you, to trust you, to eventually give you information? Where does that sort of confidence come from? Or, you know, how did you find your way in doing that? Because that's sort of like a very extreme version of something that everyone in every walk of life really needs. It's just... It is. It know, is. It, it's an incredibly extreme. valuable skill and an important one. I think being a freelancer, that's been the most important skill that I have built from those years. Because at that stage, I didn't have the money to hire the best fixers and to just come in and basically throw money at the problem. So the best way to do it is to simply build really authentic relationships. It's all about your relationships. You know, once you have gone there and you have gotten to know people, especially in, in the Middle East and in many of the cultures and African cultures that I was working in, like it's really about those relationships. And I have seen the good and the bad with regards to that. You know, if you have strong relationships and people respect you as a reporter, then that is a you know, always going to get you better access and B, it's much more safe whenever you're working in places where you don't know if you can trust people or, or whether or not you're a commodity that could be in danger. But B, also like essentially th those last for forever. So once you've gone somewhere and built good relationships, then that's that's a, an investment and an asset. Yeah, so the groundwork. Yeah, and I do see sometimes reporters coming in from huge big networks and kind of not necessarily understanding the culture. 
So say you like fly in from New York or London and you go somewhere like Sana'a in Yemen and you don't really, you know, and you're demanding this and you're demanding this and we need this. And, you know, I have a shooting schedule and I need to see like there is a tendency to forget that it doesn't matter how much you're paying someone, especially somewhere like Afghanistan as well, like that you need to learn how to build those relationships in a way that is realistic on the ground there. So to speak I, their language literally and figuratively, literally and figuratively. I have lived through a lot of wedding albums and I have held a lot of babies and I have spent time with families in a really authentic way. And so that's the only way to really build relationships in the region. Was it ever concerning to you to be a woman in some of these places, especially alone? I mean, that's got to add another other factor in some places? You know, it's a very common question, but I've never felt like physically in danger because I'm a woman. Like, I, you know, I mean, essentially, I've never felt like I am more in danger. I've always felt relatively well respected. I mean, I felt vastly undermined, <laughs> you know, as a woman in the workplace, but not physically. I've never felt physically in danger as a woman. It has been an asset in some, in some ways. For instance, from what I understand, it's easier to get approved to go and meet with the Taliban if you're a woman. It's easier for me to sort of smuggle myself into Houthi controlled areas through, uh, you know, the internationally recognized government's checkpoints wearing a niqab. So um, it's in some ways easier. In the, in other the ways... light blonde hair doesn't stand out quite as much under a niqab. No, exactly. That has to be covered up. Of course, the only place that, that none of that works is Somalia or any kind of African country. But um, but generally yeah. speaking, in the Arab world, I can, uh, or in Afghanistan as well, I suppose I can put on a burqa. Do you find that being a woman actually gave you an in in some cases in that it can sort of soften people up in a way it'll kind of get people to trust you a little bit more or or maybe not automatically to trust you but to fear you less versus if you were a man traveling alone yes i've often said you know my greatest asset in many situations is being underestimated it's very helpful to be underestimated i find that sometimes men in positions of power they see you as less of a threat and that can be an asset. In many places, it is. A lot of cultures I work in are so chivalrous that like, I've seen men who at like, you know, the entrance to military bases in Yemen who don't dare close a door on me because, you know, so I've, I've literally like walked through places I'm not supposed to because they don't want to say no to this lady. Um, and then you get back to New York and doors <laughs> slam door in your slam, face. Door slam, exactly. <laughs> but, um, but I would say though that it's, you know, it's not always an asset. I, you know, I have to face reality. There are cultures where I can't socialize with the men in that way. Like I'll have male colleagues in Afghanistan who can go to like government ministers for dinner and sit up late, who can, you know, sit sit in these like cat chewing sessions in Yemen. And, and I get invited to plenty of that, but but not always. There's certain places where it would be seen as unseemly for me. And the men aren't gonna let their guard down and have a drink or relax in front yeah. of a lady. So also I can't a new, a new version, a, a Middle East or another extreme version of the boys club atmosphere that exists yeah, all over exactly. the place, really. Yeah, exactly. Like that kind of like proverbial golf club that I, right. I can't go and play golf and build those sorts of relationships. Yeah. I can just drink tea in the middle of the day. I'm curious about what you said that your greatest asset is being underestimated. Are there is there a particular occasion that stands out? or experience that you think where you maybe really learned that and said, okay, this is actually something I can make use of? Well, 
I guess it just happens in tiny ways all the time. Um, it, it is more on a smaller level. Like, for instance, I think that female journalists get watched less closely sometimes by the more sort of hostile government regimes. And when it comes to coming through airports, on my way into like rebel-held Syria, flying into Beirut airport, I mean, I've persuaded, you know, customs officials that my camera and flak jacket are for bird watching. You know, like, I mean, it is. I'm just an innocent blonde lady that wants to look at some birds in Syria. Exactly. So, you know, I think that it's more to do with those little day-to-day points. Or, you know, whenever I'm trying to cover uh, military things, I do find that, um, you know, there there is more of a relaxed perspective around a female journalist sometimes, because there is a sense that I'm, you know, perhaps not on the hunt for such a hard-hitting story or something like that. And that's, that's helpful too. I also think that when you're spending time with people like the Taliban, for instance, you know, there is a certain sort of bizarre chivalry there as well, where, you know, you're almost kind of nannied as a woman, you know, in many ways that's, that's helpful to sort of feel safer, but, uh, but then an in other ways, sometimes the chivalry goes so far as women and many of my female colleagues, I think, might uh, agree with this, is that sometimes when it comes to military embeds, we can be pushed to the back because out of this sort of misplaced chivalry of, you know, she doesn't want to see... Keeping out of bang. danger or something. Yeah. The places that you have spent time in, I mean, about a year in Afghanistan, as you mentioned, Somalia, Yemen, the first Al Jazeera correspondent in rebel-held Syria. Are there any times there where you find especially when you were either on your own or or in a small team where you thought this has gone too far or I don't know how I'm going to get out of the situation, those kind of... Yeah, uh, definitely. Thankfully, not too many because you don't see the, the trips that I don't go on or the or the, the things that I back out of, you know, because I do think really carefully about measuring the risks. That first ever trip into rebel-held Syria was something that really spooked me. You know, I was 27 years old and I... So young. Yeah, and I was alone and I really wanted to cover this story. This is back in those early days. Do you remember whenever like the rebels controlled like Bab Amr neighborhood and like barely? And so there was this little uprising and they knew in home city that they were largely surrounded and that the the military were going to go in. They were already softening them up and bombarding them, but they were going to go in and actually like arrest everybody and kill people. And so there was this rush in those really early days of some journalists going in. I I remember before I was there, there were some uh, British journalists had gone in. There was Paul Wood at the BBC had, had, they'd managed to smuggle him in. And there was also uh, Sky News, I think had been in. And so they came to me at Al Jazeera where I was fairly new and unknown. And I think that they were hoping that less of a famous face, less associated with Al Jazeera was helpful because they were, you know, very much so unpopular with the regime. And so they uh, sent me in and with this network of sort of activists who were helping journalists sneak in and we snuck in across like, like on foot from Lebanon. I remember feeling almost ashamed of how afraid I was on that assignment. In Homs City, in the little neighborhoods that were rebel controlled, they were barely controlled. When I got there, there were like a couple of teenagers in tracksuits with AK-47s, like standing under some tarpaulin, like guarding the rebel held areas. And I realized that these guys were entirely nihilistic in their perspective and they weren't going to take the city and that this place was going to get crushed with at any moment. And I had actually planned to stay a week and I left after a couple of days because I was just too afraid. I, I mean, how interesting though, and I, I can completely understand where that comes 
comes from. But to be in a situation where it's so obviously objectively dangerous, it makes so much sense that you would be fearful to be in that situation. But there's this kind of aura, I guess, that's around reporting and war war reporting that like, you're not supposed to be afraid or you know. yeah or that for me it was a very different kind of fear by this stage i'd already been covering like you know i'd been to afghanistan before somalia plenty of times um yemen but this was a different kind of fear and i could tell in my gut you know there's fear which is very helpful but you sort of just make your peace with it and get on with your work but i found it hard to work it followed me around and i was really like i was afraid all the time and I knew that this wasn't normal, but I, at the time I was so young and I was so, so much of a rookie that I wasn't really following my gut. And so I didn't understand that my instincts were saying, you need to leave, this is not okay. You know, and that my fear was, I thought it was a sort of failure. I thought that I wasn't cut out for this. And I felt a sentence of shame because it was a very privileged position to have been put in this roster. For these guys came and got me from Beirut to get me in. And I felt like a braver reporter, quote unquote, would have done a better job. And when I got out, I was very shaken. I mean, I, I did my work. We did a three-part series. It was really, really in-depth reporting and I was proud of it, but I also felt like I had failed a little bit. And then when we got out and I, I was still a little shaken, I think I was very, very shaken by this trip and how scared I was. And I called my boyfriend at the time, it's my husband now, and, and we met in Istanbul to sort of just decompress. I just really needed to talk to someone because I got up one morning in my hotel room in Doha or in the middle of the night, I couldn't sleep. I remember going in, checking the bathroom because I was so paranoid. I was just utterly paranoid yeah. about Syrian regime folks that it, it had really, the story had gotten inside my head. And so I called that called Matt and said let's go meet in uh, in Istanbul and while I was in Istanbul uh Marie Colvin was killed she'd been in on the next wow. the next wow. kind of tranche of reporters if you needed like, any other justification honestly, that you know you were right to trust yeah, the intuition it's a horrible horrible way to learn that but it's true and I had as a very young it's my most rookie mistake was not trusting my my instincts and feeling like I had something to prove like I needed to prove I was brave enough for this assignment rather than yeah. being able to just walk away and say this is not going to work that's so interesting and again I find that to be once again, the same theme of an extreme version of a very common and crucial human skill and an issue is learning to trust our intuition, listening to it, yeah, believing that it's okay, even if you might be afraid of what other people think, you know, having more years and so many more experiences under your belt. Has that been honed a lot differently since that experience in terms of building up the confidence to say, this is good, this is not this I will do this, I will not? Sure, absolutely. 100%. In fact, last year, I was in Afghanistan, and I had just done a pretty risky trip in with the Taliban in Wardak province, which is not too far from Kabul, but it's extremely volatile, huge amount of fighting down there. And so I have that kind of very uh, stereotypical foreign correspondent thing of sort of superstition about pushing your luck. But I had this one other story. So we got that story out. And then I had this one other story I wanted to do where I wanted to profile these militias that were fighting ISIS in Afghanistan because they're so interesting. We know very little about them. And I thought this is fascinating, but it is in an extremely dangerous part of the country right along the Pakistani border. And I got there and I just got a bad feeling. And I said, no, thank you. And I, we drove back to Kabul. And I didn't feel, you know, I'm sort of shortening the story. There were a few incidences that happened that made me feel unsafe. But generally speaking, I was just going on my gut. And I just 
called my foreign editor and said, I don't feel good about this. I think there could be a kidnapping threat and I'm not going to go through with it. So I do feel less self-conscious. I don't feel like I have so much to prove. There's always pressure. You know, you've pitched these stories. You've asked for a budget of money. You go there. There is pressure not to back out, but not nearly enough to make me take silly risks. Right. We're talking about your life after all. Well, on that note of pressure, there's two sort of worlds to this. One is the inside the war zone and what happens and some of what we've been talking about. And the other is the network correspondent world, which <laughs> I think arguably might have which similar is much more frightening for me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you've been at CNN, then you went to Al Jazeera. Now you're obviously at PBS. How have you navigated that? Because I know there's a lot of competition, not just to get the story, but in in terms of where you're moving in your career and everything? Yeah, I mean, the honest answer is that it's a pretty horrible world. <laughs> you know, I, I work with some incredible people and I'm lucky. When I say a horrible world, I really do mean network news. Like, I'm very lucky. I get to live in this PBS bubble where so many of the pressures that uh, the, that the network world uh, has, you know, I'm exempt from, and I'm incredibly grateful for that. But I'm I'm still a freelance journalist at this stage, you know, and so I, I think that it's it's incredibly hard. We're trying to do a job, and if you're old school like me, and you're a reporter and a journalist at heart, it's very hard to try to coexist with this very Hollywood world. And much of network news wouldn't like to admit this, but it is. It's casting calls. It's talent agents. It's it's a look. I have been told I have the wrong accent. I have been told I'm too young. I have been told that like it's such a distraction from your actual job. And unfortunately, it is more of a Hollywood version of an industry than we would like it to be. I have you know, the skills that you picked up in places like Yemen in terms of speaking up <laughs> for yourself, finding your lane, you know, all these things that seem to have been a common thread throughout your childhood and career. Has that helped, do you think, in, in navigating that? Or it's just another world? Because I know, I mean, for me also, the, the whole notion of company politics is something that I have always consciously stayed so far from. And while staying out of it, I observe, I can definitely see on the other side of that wall is that yeah. it works for people and how important it is. But I, I stay out of it too. And I, and I think that that's good, but it, you will pay a price, you know, like it's hard. You, you, you're out in the field your whole career and you think that you're going to be judged on your skills and the stories that you told. But unfortunately, as an industry, it's much, much more complex than that. And it's much less fair. Um, you're right. Like I, I have built the kind of confidence from my experiences in the world that has helped me. But I still feel vast amounts of insecurity about all sorts of things. You know, the higher I rise in broadcasting, I look around and the less I see people from the kind of backgrounds I came from. I see you know, a lot of Ivy League, a lot of, of people from extreme wealth. Like I, I don't see people from backgrounds like me and that makes me insecure. It doesn't matter how many DuPonts or Emmys, like you'll still feel a sense of insecurity. I still look in the mirror and think, oh my God, you know, I'm never going to measure up. You know, it doesn't matter how many insurgent groups you have built, you know, networks of contacts in. <laughs> you know, you have bad teeth yeah. or you have, <laughs> you know, like I, I hate to admit it because it's, it's so silly, but it's true. Unfortunately, you know, there are these additional insecurities 
insecurities and they're there for, you know, a reason. Yeah. It's one of those things that from the outside, I mean, I can tell you from my perspective, I'm like, that's insane. But of course, we all feel that. And it's so natural. And, and we also all feel that I think a lot of times that we're the only ones with those certain feelings or those certain securities. And despite all the accolades and all the success and, and fulfilling your path and all that stuff, it's such a universal thing. What were you, you were talking about originally, though, that brought you to reporting in the first place, this, this desire to bridge the gap, to communicate between sides that that you have found that right path to do that i mean that original desire has is fulfilled in what you do yeah i i really really do i love right now the medium that i have in the news hour whereby i get 10 minutes you know i can do an 11 minute story um and which in, fight in for 11 tv minutes, world is like an eternity forever you know like i'm very grateful that i get to tell stories that have enough nuance and like you say that is rare like i just don't think that the evening news which i love and i watch every day is it's the kind of medium where people will feel informed but they're not really going to understand you can tell people what is happening in the world but you can't tell them why in that amount of time. And so when I go on air on, on the news hour, like I can talk about how hunger in Yemen is connected to the fighting. I can't make people empathize and connect and understand in 90 seconds. It's pointless. Absolutely. And I also love, I do a little bit of writing, I'm not a very good writer, but I try. And I, I do a little bit and I, I, I write for the New Yorker sometimes. And it also really complements the TV work because as a TV reporter, perhaps you felt this way. You've walked away from a story and thought, oh, I have so much more to say. Yeah. And I have all these other people I spoke to. And I just really, you know. Where and so you print, put all that on the yeah, cutting Yeah, print has floor. this great place to be able to do things that we can't do in broadcasting. So, yeah, I love doing yeah. that too. Yeah, I think that that's something I've also pursued while in broadcasting and, and had the space to do in various places to be able to tell a story more in depth and to connect the dots for people too, to show how yeah. one thing is so intimately connected to another that you would never think really is related. But if you have the time to explain it, you really see that bigger picture. Yeah. And I am actually, I feel a little bit vindicated. So, you know, it's kind of funny. There's always been this years long banter between me and my husband who works at a network about the future oh. of journalism. And he's always <laughs> been very like pessimistic, you know, whereas I'm this sort of, I'm very optimistic and idealistic. And I do feel vindicated with the way things are going in terms of, look at the, the landscape that I got into, right? And you two probably ran about the same time, like everything's shutting down, the global economy, like journalism is finished. I mean, people used to give awful advice to young people wanting to get into journalism. And look at it now, like with streaming online. You know, I don't think that 90 seconds packages are the future i think frontline documentaries are the future and i mean look at look at the, the explosion yeah, so much more appetite for content there's an appetite for content for content there's which means that the public they're interested they want to know about the world you know i don't think people find it boring i think people want to understand the context and the nuance and what's going on in the world and i think that like you know the podcasting world it shows that there's an innate curiosity people do care and they want to yeah. know so versus what you were told early on which is stay the hell away from journalism there's no future there now that you're also teaching you teach at princeton no less what's maybe like a kind of top piece of advice you might tell your students women in particular maybe 
who want to get into the same line of work today? So I teach a course in war reporting, which is obviously hard to do because uh, I think there'd be quite a few complaints from parents if I started actually taking the students to a war zone. <laughs> no field so trips I, allowed. Yeah, no field trips, unfortunately. But one of the most important things uh, that I that I ha- teach the kids and I and the students, I think that they love to learn about is they want to know about things like how do I tell these stories with a sense of nuance and empathy. And so they really, really care. They really, really want to know. And I enjoy teaching that where I talk to them about how do you not reduce people to numbers. The the best way to do it is to study those who are great at it, you know, how to talk about people like human beings. That's my most important message when I'm, you know, uh, teaching this class. And it's to get past this nonsense machismo idea that war reporting is about the bang bang. You know, when war reporting is is about people in extraordinarily stressed circumstances. Well, I'll I'll let you go soon, but I want to come back to one thing on a more personal note. You mentioned your husband's also a journalist who's at a network, so I guess you speak the same language in terms of the field, but how is it to have a personal life with this lifestyle? Because you're not exactly, you know, going home and coming in the evening every day. Your your business trip is to Mogadishu or Sana or Beirut. It is very challenging for journalists generally, foreign correspondents, partly because we travel so much, but also because it's so competitive. You know, we, especially for us women, like we're always trying to consolidate anything that we've built in our career. And like, I think there's always this sort of fear factor of my career being fragile. So I can't turn down this trip or I must push for this one or I must try to be on the road more. I I daren't ask, can I go home because it's Christmas? And so I feel that it does put vast pressure on. I have no idea how I would have a relationship with anybody other than a journalist. I just don't think a banker would put up with me ever. <laughs> uh, but yeah, even someone who a, understands the pressures. Yes, and understands why you need to be on the road. So the way we did it, and it, it was very difficult. I ended up being a long distance with my partner for a very long time. And I know a lot of journalists end up having to do these long stints apart. But we eventually came up with this rule that we wouldn't go any more than two weeks apart if we could fly to visit one another in the field. And so he has visited me in Kabul. I have visited him in a bunch of places. Like we have flown out to see one another because going really, really long periods of time, you know, is very destructive to a relationship. That being said, though, we've been together for 10 years now and we have spent a lot of 2020 together. I think we've never, ever spent so much yeah, time together. That was so exactly to, what I was thinking about <laughs> is what is it like for a war correspondent who I imagine, correct me if I'm wrong, might have some slight addiction to this atmosphere because every producer and war correspondent I've talked to has. Oh my goodness. It's to been suddenly hard. be like, actually, you're staying home and even at home, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go. It's incredibly challenging. I have struggled. I'm not going to lie. I've never been in one country this long since possibly I was in college. So it's very, very weird for me. I find myself sort of pacing up and down. I hate not having 
that freedom to just travel. You know, I'm going away in January and I just can't wait. And only journalists would understand like that I'm so excited to be going into a war zone in January because I'm going somewhere to work and to do something of use. I'm aware now of how privileged I am that I can just get on planes and go places whenever I feel like it. So I, I desperately miss it. But I also think that, you know, I think it's a good thing for a relationship as well to be to see each apart, other <laughs> to be apart as well though oh, yeah, like yeah. you know I think that there's this perfect balance I love that we never fall into this sort of nine to five routine you know if I've been on assignment and I come home then it's like special you know yeah, um, and sure. vice versa so there's this balance that I'd love to get back to. Well, finally, before I let you go, just give us a preview of what is ahead for you when uh, when hopefully you are allowed to get on that plane. I am going to go to Afghanistan and uh, gosh, I really don't, I'm trying not to overplan it because it's become such a chaotic situation that you can't overplan the stories. Um, beyond that trip, I have nothing else planned at this stage. So I'm writing a book, I'm writing a memoir. Yeah, that's it. We'll see. We'll see where well, nothing, I wouldn't call a memoir to. nothing else plan. <laughs> Let me give you some perspective. <laughs> That's true. I, I probably should be doing a lot more writing right now. <laughs> no, no. I think, uh, you know, not only have you done uh, incredible things so far, you still have so much ahead of you, but it's also okay to, to take a pause <laughs> sometime. <laughs> Thank you. You know, and I think we've learned planning is really a little bit overrated over the last That's year. That's true. So. That's true. If the last year has taught us anything, it's taught us to sit still and make peace with the inability to decide what's going to happen. Absolutely. Well, Jane Ferguson, thank you so much for taking the time and taking us through some of those incredible experiences. Thank you so much. I, I loved having this chat. Thank you all so much for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. Send us your thoughts, questions you want answered, or women you want to hear from on Twitter at Nareet Ben or Instagram at Life Deconstructed Pod. And coming up next week, for over 30 years, producer Anahid Nazarian has collaborated with Francis Ford Coppola. Her screen credits include The Outsiders, The Godfather Part 3, and Bram Stoker's Dracula. A self-described woman of few words, she opens up about how she got into the industry as a librarian, what it's really like to produce a major film, and why Francis Ford Coppola is crazy. At least once a week, he'll, he'll call me into his office and say, you want to hear a crazy idea? And the thing about Francis is they're not just ideas. He's willing to take a risk and make them happen. We are two opposites in how our minds think. He has the imagination of a nine-year-old. I'm Nuri Ben. We'll see you next week on Life Deconstructed.